0: As they're heading out, I'm going to invite Doris to come and give us our reading, which is Acts 15, 1 to 11.
1: Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to this custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp disputes and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some, some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the arts, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now and then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God.
0: So, um, do you think... That every person in this church, and this is a rhetorical question, do you think that every person in this church uh, agrees on every point of Christian theology and doctrine? Uh, I'd be very surprised if that was the case because in any church there's always a bit of bandwidth uh, when it comes to people's positions on certain issues. Uh, Well, we've had, the church has had uh, 2,000 years to work through all this, And still, we don't agree on everything. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that the early church had to work through a lot of disagreement, controversy, and even heresy in order to reach a unified position on the stuff that really matters. Uh, Jesus' public ministry lasted just three years. He never wrote anything down. He definitely didn't tie off every loose end. Instead, he entrusted a small group of disciples uh, tax collectors, fishermen, uh, normal, normal working class blokes, he entrusted with the knowledge of God's plan to save broken human beings from sin and death. Now that might look like a risky strategy to us, uh, but God doesn't always do things in the way that we might expect him to. And of course, God filled all the early believers with his Holy Spirit, just as he continues to do today knowing that the Holy Spirit would guide the church as it worked through uh, some of these issues that would inevitably come up. Jesus told the disciples this would happen while he was still with them. In John 14, he says this, All this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit is going to teach them and remind them and Help them to work through these big questions. Remember, the early church didn't have the advantage of the New Testament that hadn't come about yet. And what we're reading today is the early church working through some of the implications of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And they're working through the most important question of all what does it take to be saved? What does it take to be saved? Now, it's important to uh you know to understand before we go on uh that when there's any sort of dispute or disagreement um within the church that there are different levels to this not every issue that gets raised is of equal importance and there has always been i think what we would uh, perhaps describe as open-hand issues and closed-hand issues open-hand issues are those that Christians can disagree on whilst accepting that the other person still holds a position that is legitimately Christian. Uh, For example, in the early church, uh, they had a dispute um, about food that had been offered to idols. Not an issue in our day, but uh, it was a big uh, thing for them. And Paul explained that Christians could actually eat that food, uh, but if they felt that they ought not to, then they should refrain. Uh, he also said to them, you know, if you're happy to eat food that's been offered to idols, that's, that's OK. Uh, but if you're with someone who can't eat that food for reasons of conscience, then uh, then for their sake, don't do it. Don't eat it. So that's an example of an open handed issue. That's not one we face today. Uh, we don't go to coals and buy meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol. Uh, that was relevant in the uh, in the ancient world, though. A modern example could be something like this modern example of an open-handed issue okay so um a lot of churches believe that every time we gather on a sunday uh, we should receive communion uh, share communion and uh, we we do that here but other churches uh, might only have uh, communion once a month and that's okay that's an open-handed issue christians are free uh, to uh, make decisions about those sorts of things a closed-handed issue has to do with something that all Christians ought to agree on. Now, we could debate what constitutes an open or closed-handed issue, but if it has to do with salvation, it is definitely a closed-handed issue. The question that underlies the debate that we're reading about today is what does it take to be saved? So this is definitely a closed-handed issue. Uh, So Paul and Barnabas were... Uh, discipling the church in Antioch, which was predominantly, or maybe even exclusively, a Gentile congregation. So these were uh, non-Jews uh, who come from a pagan background who have put their faith in Jesus. Uh, then, then, then some Jews from uh, Judea, so that's Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Uh, uh, they uh, uh, they converted to. Um, uh, Christianity, but they still had some funny ideas. This, this, these Jews that turned up from Judea—I uh, say funny ideas—we uh, probably say heretical ideas. Uh, they were saying, "Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved." Now, the idea of being circumcised as an adult in the first century, when the procedure was uh, no doubt a lot cruder than it is today. I don't think that's ever going to go down well, is it? Uh, but there are far more at stake than the reservations of the Christians in Antioch uh, had about being circumcised. Because those Jewish Christians were basically saying, to be saved, you need what Jesus did for you on the cross, and you need to be circumcised, and you need to follow the more law of Moses. And uh, we see this again because when Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem and they had a big council to uh, sort all this out, uh, some who uh, had a background as Pharisees, and we read a lot about the Pharisees in the New Testament, but it's good to remember that obviously significant numbers of Pharisees did actually become uh, believers, uh, which is good, but then they said this, they said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So these Pharisees are struggling to let go of the old uh, Jewish way of doing things, the old covenant. Uh, Just to clarify, the Old Testament and the old covenant are are, are the same thing. Testament and covenant are the same. A covenant is an, an agreement, in this case an agreement that God has made with his people. So in the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that comes before Jesus God lays out how he wants his people to live. So keeping the law of Moses is basically living according to the laws of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. This is uh, how it was for Jews before Jesus came along. This was God's uh, law for them. But those laws and the system of animal sacrifice that went with it, or with them, did not deal with the problem of sin. The law in the Old Testament does not deal with the problem of sin. Uh, part of the reason those laws were given was to demonstrate that human beings cannot live according to God's holy law, which can't do, it. it's impossible. We're sinful, and we cannot meet God's standards of holiness. Every human being stands guilty before God. Now this is a significant problem. To be a sinful human being, to stand guilty before a just God who will deliver justice, well, that's not a good place to be. But there is a solution to the problem, and his name is Jesus. And actually, the the law of Moses, the Old Testament, points forward to Jesus. If you go on a car journey, you're going to pass a lot of road signs along the way directing you to where you need to go. But you don't stop the car at each road sign and tear it down and sling it in the back, do you? Why not? Well, because when you get to your destination, you no longer need the road signs. The road signs are pointing to you to where you need to go. Once you're there, you don't need them. The law of Moses, the Old Testament, points forward to Jesus. Once we get to Jesus, we don't need that anymore. The moral aspects of the law are still important, but God said he'd write those on our hearts. And of course, there's still a lot that we can learn from the Old Testament, a lot that uh, God still speaks through it, but we're not under the Old Testament law. (laughs) The fact is we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be restored to a right relationship with God by being good, because none of us are truly good. And you might say, well, I'm I'm basically a good person. I haven't murdered anyone. haven't robbed any banks. haven't had an extramarital affair. I'm basically a pretty good person. But let me ask you a question. Would you allow a transcript of every thought you've had just in the last 24 hours? We've got it all written down. And we're going to share it out in church this morning. Everyone read every thought you've had in the last 24 hours. Who would be comfortable with that? Who would allow that? None of us. Of course not. Because we, we, we all fall short of God's standards of holiness. We cannot save ourselves. That's why Jesus needed to die for us. We can be brought back into a right relationship with God because Jesus has died for our sins. We can be declared not guilty, Because Jesus has taken the punishment that we deserve. Jesus offers us forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We just need to put our faith in Christ. Our salvation is not based on anything we do. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. In other words, our salvation from sin and death is a pure act of grace on God's part those Jewish Christians who went to Antioch and declared that the Gentiles are non-Jews, I needed to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses, they didn't understand grace. They still thought that there was something they had to do to come into a right relationship with God. Their motives may have been good, but they were trying to take everyone back to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. You know, every major world religion, apart from Christianity, is a works-based religion. Uh, In other words, acceptance by God is something we earn on merit by our works. This is every other world religion. And even though Christianity is very explicit that salvation is a free gift from a loving and gracious God, uh, a lot of people, including a large number of Christians, I think fail to grasp this fully. But let me first explain how religion works. I don't include Christianity in this. So think back to when you learn to drive, uh, if you can think back that long. Uh, in fact, it doesn't have to be about you. It could be anyone. When, when someone uh, learns to drive, generally they're going to book a whole series of lessons with a driving instructor who will teach them the rules and show them how to drive. Uh, In addition to those lessons, they'll probably spend uh, many hours driving around with a parent or family member in the passenger seat. And at the end of all that, the day arrives when they've got to take a test. If they pass the test, they get the driving license. If they fail the test, they don't. But none of those people who have helped them along the way can say for sure that they're going to get that driving license. And they don't know for sure that they're going to get the driving license until they take the test and pass it. Well, it's like that with religion. All the major world religions, not Christianity, but all the major world religions. You sign up to a course, a journey, a way of life. Perhaps you've got a a rabbi, or an imam, or a pujari, uh, to teach you the rules. That's like the driving instructor. Uh, And there'll be various people along the way to help you, parents, family members, uh, friends... But none of them can say for sure that you're going to make the grade. And you won't know for sure until you die and you meet God face to face. And if you do make it through to the equivalent of heaven, it's on the basis of an assessment of merit. In other words, when all is said and done, do your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds? And if they do, then you're in. If they don't, you're not. This is essentially what all the major religions, apart from Christianity, believe. And even many Christians, I think, mistakenly see it that way. As if at the end of the, your life, God is going to put you on this set of scales, and whichever side you come down on, that, 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 that's it. But that's not Christianity. That's religion. That is an assessment of merit. Just as you take a driving test to get your driving license in all other world religions, God will assess you at the end of your life and to to, to decide whether or not you pass this test. Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. And relationships don't work that way. In a relationship, acceptance comes at the beginning. Jesus made it clear that if we listen to him and we believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life, if we put our trust in him, then from that moment, we're transferred from death to life. From that very moment. The moment we put our trust in Jesus, we are declared not guilty and brought into his kingdom. In a relationship, acceptance has to come at the beginning. And to demonstrate this, I want to use an illustration uh, that I heard uh, John Lennox use. I'm going to borrow it. It's a good illustration. So uh, let's say that nearly 20 years ago, I uh, met Tissa. And I thought, and this bit is true, and I thought, she's amazing. I want to marry her. Uh, so before I did anything else, I gave her a gift. She unwrapped it. Oh, what's this? It's a, it's a book. It's a book of rules. It's a book of law. And she starts reading this book, And uh, it said things like, you will cook beautiful Jamaican food. Uh, You will kiss me and tell me that you love me. And you'll go on all kinds of adventures in other parts of the world. It's a whole book of law, hundreds of hundreds of laws that that Tissa's, Tissa's got to follow. And then I say to Tissa, if you keep these rules, this law, for the next 30 or 40 years, then I may consider accepting you If not, you can go back to your mother. Will you marry me? (laughs) Apart from the obvious black eye that would ensue, you would never insult a fellow human being by basing a relationship on merit. Relationships don't work like that. Our relationship with God doesn't work like that. If having a relationship with God was based on our merit, none of us would have a relationship with God. Relationships are based on love. John 3.16, perhaps the best-known verse in the Bible, summarizes the gospel perfectly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're not saved because we are good. We're saved because Jesus is good, and we put our trust in him. But some, uh, someone might say, and this is a question that was raised in the early church, they might say, well, if my salvation doesn't depend on me being good, then I can just do whatever I like, and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change anything. But seriously, if we've reached the conclusion that there's a loving, benevolent, All-knowing God, who loves us enough to have died for us, wouldn't we want to do his will? Apart from anything else, God does know what's best for us. We don't. We like to think we know what's best for us. We don't. God does. (laughs) Bringing it back to um, human relationships, Tissa does cook beautiful Jamaican food, not to gain my acceptance, but because she already has my acceptance, and we have a loving relationship. And we honor God with our lives, not to gain God's acceptance and secure our place in his kingdom, but because we have his acceptance and we want to live as citizens of his kingdom. And of course, as with uh, any relationship, there are times when we get it wrong. God doesn't get it wrong. He's perfect, but we do. And even when we mess up, even when we mess up, God accepts us because we put our faith in Jesus. And if we're willing to work with God's spirit, he will always bring us back on track. So you see the difference between religion and relationship. Religion relies on our merit. Relationship, rel- relationship with God relies on his love and grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And the inevitable result of having a relationship with God is that we will want to please him. And the more we get to know God, and the more we realize just how much he loves us and wants the best for us, the more we'll want to bring our lives in line with his will. The Jewish Christians who were promoting circumcision and uh, Mosaic law were, in fact, perhaps without even realizing it, trying to take the church down the path of religion rather than relationship. So Peter got up and he said, look, when I preached to the Gentiles, and he was talking about that time when he went to the home of a Roman centurion, Cornelius, uh, he said, when I preached to the Gentiles, uh, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and this shows that God accepted them without them having to follow all these rules and regulations, the the, the Old Testament law. And he said, why are you trying to put a yoke, a heavy load, on the necks of the Gentiles that even our ancestors couldn't bear? Religion can be stifling. Relationship with God through Jesus Christ is always life-giving. It's not that the way we live isn't important. It is. But it's not the, the basis for our relationship with God. It's a result. And the disciples and the, the group of Christians who had that meeting in Jerusalem acknowledged this because uh, in the end they wrote to their brothers and sisters in Antioch with this advice. They said, You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. But what they're doing there is it may sound strange, some of those things to us, but what they're doing there is they're reaching a compromise with these believers who are coming from a Jewish background. So they're saying, well, actually, we can abide by these things. It doesn't do any harm, but we know we don't have to. And and what we see here, we've got open-handed issues and closed-handed issues in that one statement. So food sacrificed to idols, was, is... Doesn't really come up now, but it, it is an open-handed issue. Paul said that Christians can eat that meat, and you know, and actually, if you went to a market in Antioch and bought meat, you wouldn't necessarily know whether it had been sacrificed to an idol or not, because that was the the, the culture of the day.
1: Um,
0: So so that that's an open-handed issue, but then uh, they also talk about sexual immorality. Avoid sexual immorality. They're they're writing to pagans who who have been used to temple prostitution and all kinds of uh, horrible things. And we're going to use that term sexual immorality as an umbrella term for today. But that is a closed-handed issue. It's all forms of sexual immorality are roundly condemned in both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, they make a mockery of God's good gifts of uh, marriage and sex, and they cause all kinds of, it causes all kinds of problems uh, in, in people's lives and in the world. Uh, just as one example, just one example, I don't think anyone would disagree that marital unfaithfulness, unfaithfulness causes a lot of hurt and pain. God doesn't say, you know, you're going you, to be faithful within marriage because he wants to spoil our fun. God says it because he knows how to live well in his world and what is going to work well for us and, and, and how he's intended us to live. He wants the very best for us. He wants the best for us. So he puts in boundaries so we don't get hurt. So the way we live matters. And the council in Jerusalem, guided by the Holy Spirit, reached this conclusion. This is kind of a summary of the message uh, that they sent to Antioch. They said, salvation is through faith in Christ alone. Don't add anything to that. But don't, turn, don't return to your old pagan practices either, because the way we live for Christ matters. And it's the same for us today. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. Uh, The basis for our relationship with God is his love and grace. But the way we live matters. And because we have a relationship with God, and the more we get to know him and discover what he's like, we want to honour him with our lives and our being. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have made it so easy for us to receive forgiveness and everlasting life. It cost us nothing. It cost Jesus everything. And Father, we recognize our own sinfulness, our own inability to live according to your holy laws. And therefore, we, without you, we're lost. Without you, we stand condemned. Without you, we're dead in our sin. But with you, we're declared not guilty. And we're freed from sin and death. And we can have a right relationship with you. And we thank you so much for this. And we pray that our heart response to what you've done for us, what you're doing in and through us, will be to live according to your will. We recognize we make mistakes, we get things wrong, we're still sinful. But we pray that you'll help us to be changed and transformed, to become more like Jesus, to become more the people that you created us to be.